to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Hey, Consciously family, it's Menachem. Welcome to episode five of Spiritual Gangsters, Real People Who Are Killing It. Today we have a really interesting guest, my friend Nussan Zand. Nussan Zand is actually a graduate student at the Silverman School of Social Work at Hunter College, and he's, actually, he's going to be graduating this May with his master's degree in clinical social work, focused on individuals, families, and groups. But that's not what makes Nussan so cool. Nussan's also a well-known rapper, singer, and songwriter who has performed across the country internationally and toured nationwide with Grammy-nominated singer Matis Yahoo as featured rapper and backup singer. He is currently working as a clinician at Tikva at Oho, an outpatient mental health clinic in Brooklyn, and was formerly a clinical social worker at Counterforce in Brooklyn. Nussan was also executive assistant at the Jewish Recovery Center in Boca Raton, Florida. Our conversation was revealing, fascinating, and I'm happy to share it with you. You came and you went like a bird in the sky. You were in mid-fight, but then so was I. Some people caught feelings, but my feelings caught me. You gave me the key and it set me free. Everybody. Hello. Hi, Nessen. Hey, Chaim. How's How you doing? On? Good. How are you uh, handling this whole Corona situation? It's 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 quite the wild ride. You're uh, home with the you. with the wife. Yeah, yeah. We got a little cabin fever situation going on over here, but um, we're you know we're keeping each other sane amidst the uh, insanity. So I was uh, working on this episode with Aton, the editor. And I was wanted to choose a song that kind of reflected your story, and I thought of no other song of yours that better does it than Memories. And then I figured I got this nifty thing here. I could just call you and ask you to give it a little background. I think that's a good choice. It's not. It's like the least rappy of all my songs, but as far as the content, I think you're right. Um, for me, what it represents, what the actual words are alluding to, is the ups and downs that one has to endure when growing up, or at least that I did. Um, and the the lows could be quite low. And fortunately, there were people along the way um, who were strong shoulders to lean on, or who provided strong shoulders for me to lean on. Um and it's it's basically kind of an ode to the to the helper, an ode to the ode to my support. We're gonna play your interview now, and uh, wishing you and your family and everyone who's listening uh, safety and health, and uh, our prayers are are with you. Amen. Amen. Take Thank care. you, Chaim. Okay. Bye, buddy. You gave me the key and it set me free. Everybody seems to know that the world goes round and round and the pick yourself up when you're down. It's easy to say, but it's so hard to do. 
so we're here with Nuss and Zan, and uh, you guys heard about um, who he is. But let uh, I want to give the listeners an opportunity to get to know you, you know, a little better, a little bit different. So um, where where are you from? I'm originally from Brookline, Massachusetts, suburb uh, Boston. Um, it's very close to many different parts of Boston. Um, I heard that's like a super bougie, high-end, upper-class neighborhood. So Brookline is certainly <laughs> certainly known for uh, for for being a wealthy town. But, okay. Um, it's interesting. It's got a bunch of different moving parts to it. And growing up, I, I managed to find the far less bougie parts, to put it mildly. Right, right. So from Brookline, uh, you made it to Brooklyn. Yeah. And that was a journey. Cir- circuitous route. Circuitous route. You told me earlier about Paris. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, Florida. It was, a, it was a layover, layover in, in Paris and Florida in that order. Right. Um, started becoming more observant as a Jew while I was in Paris after college. Met some inspirational people and decided to bottle up some of that inspiration and then find a way to make my own. And um, you shared earlier about your rap career starting at 12 and 14 and at what point did you like as an adult realize that you wanted to pursue that in a real way? Um, I guess, you know, it was a hobby until it wasn't. One day I was raking leaves for my parents and I got a phone call. I'd been doing, I'd been, like you mentioned, I was rapping since the age of 14. <clears throat> My first concert was at the the House of Blues in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right near Harvard. And um, when I started becoming more observant, my music followed suit and started becoming more spiritually minded and influenced. And... Um, I'm out raking leaves in my in front of my parents' house, and I get a call from my rabbi, Rabbi Posner, Shmuel Posner of Chabad of Greater Boston, and he says, what are you doing? I said, raking leaves. He said, drop the rake. I was like, oh, what's going on? He said, Modest Yahoo's in town. He's, he's going to be at a certain synagogue. Go there now. Uh, and I went, introduced myself, Explained that I do uh, something with rap and hip hop. It's very much akin to what he was doing with reggae. He asked me, he's like, "You got you got a verse for me? Verses, you know, a little sample of a uh, of a rap, basically." And he beatboxed for me in front of the Young Israel in Brookline. And I I did my thing, and he was impressed. And later that night, he invited me backstage and to his concert. And at that point, I handed him a CD with some of my stuff and my, my contact info and didn't expect to hear anything. And then a couple weeks later, I heard, heard from the people who 
he was first signed with. Uh, and they said, Maraciao highly recommends that we get in touch with you. And I was kind of blown away that someone actually was impressed enough to, to take the time to, to follow through and try to make something happen for me. And eventually I did a couple tours with him, North American tours for several months, and did a bunch of shows off and on with him over the years and started doing my own, my own concerts as well. Wow. And that was before you lived in Paris? No, that was after. That was after. That was after. That was once I was already observing, and once my music already went through somewhat of a transformation. Wow, it's a whole journey. Indeed, indeed. And then from Brookline, you went to Florida. Yeah, um, for a long time, people were telling me, close friends were telling me that I needed to get out of Boston for multiple reasons. Uh, wasn't always hanging out with the best crowd. And probably one of the best, aside from becoming more spiritually minded and observant in, in France, leaving Boston was probably one of the hardest, yet the best decisions I ever made. Went down to Southern Florida and eventually started uh, working for the Jewish Recovery Center. Uh, under the tutelage of Rabbi Mayor Kessler, we became good friends, and he uh, really taught me a lot. I learned a lot. Did a lot of important work down there, and the work continues. Is that, did you, when you were touring with Madizio or doing your own concerts or exploring Judaism, did you, did you ever think about pursuing like a a career in the helping in the helping field and therapy, social work? Um, I had toyed with the idea over the years, but for me, kind of making music take the back burner and starting out uh, on this new career path was. It's very fraught with conflict. Um, they say sometimes new beginnings are disguised as painful endings. Mm -hmm. I definitely had a, at the time that I decided to do a master's program here in New York, um, I felt, I almost felt like I, I broke up with a lifelong companion, uh, because I no longer had the same amount of time to be able to dedicate toward the music. And, uh, but fortunately I've managed to, to still do both, even though, even though I'm doing less concerts, uh, than I used to I'm still putting out music. So you're still allowing that medium into your life, even though it's become rather full. Yeah. Yeah. Married, have a six-month-old baby, Manhara, and at the end of the day, it's not that I'm letting the music um, be a part of my life. Still, it's that it's it's always going to be a part of my life. I've just toned it down a bit, no pun intended. And does that feel 
like looking back now in retrospect, does that feel right? Does that feel like it has its place that it's in, or is it a, a sense? Is there a sense of conflict for you? There's still a sense of conflict, but I think the the moment that you're no longer feeling conflict, you've probably moved on to the next world. So I'm okay with that. Still, still love the music. Still try to make time for it. It just requires more more effort, um, but it's still very meaningful to me, and I'd. I'd like to think that it's meaningful for, for the listeners as well. So you've been around the, around the block, so to speak. Um, what would you say, you know, is a place, if someone wanted to get to know you, as the listeners already were doing, you know, seven of the same questions to many people from diverse kind of experiences in life and, backgrounds and perspectives and um the question we start with is like what's your favorite place in the world like specifically like like if we were gonna the example i keep using is if we were gonna if you, if someone were to say like uh, as a jewish person the old city of jerusalem is a very powerful place uh the history that's there the how old is it how old it is the Temple Mount. So it's not just like the old city of Jerusalem. It's like which rock, which stone in the old city in Jerusalem? What's, what, what's the, where's the, the space in the universe where Nassim Zan feels most like Nassim Zan? I think I would have to say Hebron. Uh, Hebron or Hebron was the most meaningful to me when I was in Israel. And even in retrospect, looking back at all the places I've been, I don't know if I'd say my favorite place, but it certainly stands out as one of the the most. And how does that? On the map. And I think it's throughout most of my life, I've gravitated towards that which is different more of the fringes of society, if you will. Basically, a certain dangerous element, a tough, rough, and rugged social element. And I always found that intriguing and exciting from a very early age. From the age of 12, I started... A guy who became my best friend was a Puerto Rican guy named Omar. We're still close friends to this day. And he lived in the, the housing projects down, down the street from where I lived. And he kind of took me in, took me under his wing. And all of his friends and neighbors became, became my friends, uh, for better and for worse. And there were lots of colorful stories that, and war stories that, that go along with the, the territory. And it really uh, kind of living a life on the on the cusp of of danger and so in a certain way you're saying like destruction the journey of nothing really became a, a perpetual journey towards an important part finding of yourself creating who something I am you can't to run away day. from in Hebron. 
Right. And I, I guess you know, I, I also couldn't run away from it years ago when I was hanging out with the the crowd I, I, I chose to be with, despite despite how how different our experiences were in childhood and our families, meaning me and the, the people I was surrounding myself with, the 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 nature of the social environment was was such that it that it it forced me to really eventually do some some deep digging and, and figure out where I stood on on many different issues and, and who I was and who I wasn't. And that's something that you were always looking for. Certainly in retrospect, I remember feeling as, as a young teenager that I, that compared to a lot of these tougher characters in my life that I didn't have much of a personality. I, I admired the, the conviction of, of the people that, uh, that I was hanging out with. Not necessarily the convictions, legally speaking. But um, the passion and the attitude, and the 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 courage and the kind of just uh, confidence that uh, that so many of my friends had, I really admired that, and I I wanted that for myself. And I guess I just chose to surround myself with people who who I felt were exciting and and full of passion granted it was often about the wrong things uh but you know it was kind of a package package deal i wouldn't i wouldn't change it if i had to do it all over again so what's a a spiritual teaching a proverb a story uh, an idea that best that best reflects you that's been a guiding principle for you? So when I was on tour, I remember speaking with my rabbi's wife, Rebetzin Hani Posner. Um, and she told me that I, that I needed to be very mindful when I'm out on the road to not succumb to the, the influences to which I was being constantly exposed. How old were you then? Uh, then I was, let's see, we're already talking uh, 20, 26, 27 years old. So you had, you had completed college. Completed college, had already uh, been, been fairly uh, observant in my Judaism for about four years. Um, After college, you had shared with me that you you went to Paris and you were teaching. Yeah, American te- history. What were you teaching? No, I was teaching teaching English at the University of Versailles. Okay, so you were teaching English to the French. Yeah, you had you had a degree in French. I was a double major, U.S. history and Fran- French language. And the French department at Clark University, where I went to, to college, offered me a position that they would often. Uh, suggest to 
one of the French majors. And I took them up on it. Uh, I guess the fact that even though I was teaching English, the fact that I spoke French enough uh, would allow me to live in France without much of an issue. And when I was teaching at the University of Versailles, my only Jewish student out of several classes I was teaching ended up, uh, they, they were in the process of becoming more observant. And they introduced me to their, their brother, who was already a full-blown card-carrying Lubavitcher Chassid, Chabadnik. And we hit it off immediately. Uh, I did not know much uh, about Judaism in the, in the deeper kind of soul-oriented sense. I went to Hebrew school growing up. I went to a conservative synagogue, but after after Hebrew school, I just wasn't very connected, at least certainly not in a revealed way. And uh, this guy in, in France, we kind of saw a lot of ourselves in, in one another. He was this tough guy, he used to get in fist fights in the street uh, in Paris. This kind of actual like gangster turned spiritual gangster, and uh, I've 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 found like a lot of the things that he taught me, and a lot of the conversations that we had and arguments that we had, to be absolutely paramount in my evolution as a as a as a good guy, as a as a spirit more spiritually minded guy. I did. I did have some exposure to to Hasidic philosophy briefly at Clark University. There was a professor who had tenure, who had become observant at a later point in life. He started introducing certain concepts to me, and we also argued quite a bit. And he was telling me everything happens for a reason. And I was like, "What are you talking about? That's preposterous." What about this piece of lint on on your office floor? And I pointed to a little clump of lint in the corner so well maybe maybe that lint was there for you to make that point um so i started becoming more open in college to 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 the fact that there might be more to this jewish thing than i thought i was always proud of being jewish but couldn't ever articulate why so you so you you know develop this connectedness to observant judaism to Hasidis to Chabad, and you go to you go to Paris, and that expands um, because of some of the interactions, connections that you made, and then you come back to Brookline and or to Boston, mm-hmm. and and as you've described, so you get connected to Matisio, and then eventually you're offered the opportunity to go on tour, and going on tour on a hip hop tour is wrought with, I'm sure, all sorts of. Um, challenges and you know lustful things or right, you know distractions right. so i forgot i lost my train of thought basically what what rabbits and posner said to me she, so she's giving you advice yeah yeah she made yeah. while i was uh i think i was either on tour about to be on tour maybe just passing through boston i forget which and she 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 described to me this idea that when you have a non-kosher for Passover pot uh, that's filled with boiling water, you can take a utensil that 
that, uh, sorry, when you have a kosher for Passover pot that's filled with boiling water, you can take a non-kosher for Passover utensil, you know, drop it into the pot, and that utensil becomes kosher for Passover. So how is it that, that it doesn't affect the the pot that was that had the boiling water in it how come how come none of the non kosher components or aspects uh the 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 non kosher identity of of that utensil how is it that it doesn't rub off on on the pot and taint the pot right meaning the the kosher pot influences the non kosher utensil why doesn't the kosher, the non-kosher utensil influence the kosher pot? Yeah, exactly. And th- and she explained that the reason why is because the pot that's filled with boiling water is very hot and filled with boiling water. And when something is is so to speak on fire like that, it's only giving out, it's only exuding things. It's not it's not in a state where it is susceptible to being influenced or taking in something which is not pure. Um, so basically the moral of the story was to stay stay on fire spiritually and then you will not be corrupted by by that which is around you. So when you're walking into the, you know, the inherent crucible that is trying to live a real life from a spiritual vantage point, the way not to be influenced, the way not to be cooled down is to be on fire, is to be boiling over with spirituality. Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's a really positive message. So earlier we talked about some of your inherent skepticism about life, and uh, you talked about some of the challenges that you encountered and some of the setbacks that that led to. What in your life gave you a sense of hope, a sense that you could be optimistic? What what gives you the the audacious, radical permission to not be skeptical, to not operate from that skeptical place? So the the question in and of itself seems to be a bit presumptuous, if you ask me, which you are. Um seems a little bit slanted towards the negative, meaning how is it that you're able to find an excuse or a reason or a, a, a glimmer of hope? And in my life, the real question is how did I allow over the years pessimism, skepticism, and negativity to be, to be internalized? Uh, I think naturally I look at my... I was telling Chaim... My, my six-month-old baby, if he, as long as he's well-fed, and which he is, uh, and as long, so as long as he's not hungry and not tired, his natural state is happiness. So the real question is, how did I deviate from that natural state of happiness? Um, because a lot of it was uh, due to my own decisions. I grew up in a very nurturing home, uh, very healthy relationship with my parents. I'm still very close to this day. Thank God. And um, I would say that, you know, 
at some point I lost a lot of that positive feeling and hopeful feeling. So I guess in, in my case, the question is, how did I recapture it? And when I was in France, I was invited to a Passover Seder. And there was a, an American girl there. We were actually the only two guests. I'm pretty sure they were trying to set me up, set us up. And, you know, that, that, that never happened. But what, what did happen is this girl, you know, up until then, a lot of these Hasidic Jews who I met, a lot of these Lubavitchers were always trying to convince me of the, the truth of Torah, the truth of Judaism, the truth of the Rebbe, how, you know, the Rebbe performed miracles and would tell, you know, other stories, the Baal Shem Tov and this Tzaddik and that Tzaddik. And I really felt that they all were just trying to convert me or convince me of their way of thinking, recruit me, if you will, like I'd be another uh, notch on their belt or something. But this girl was not observant, but she told me a story about how her mother went to the Lubavitcher Rebbe after many, many years of struggling to become pregnant to no avail, and went to the Rebbe for a blessing. And the Rebbe looked at her and said, you're pregnant. Lo and behold, she went to the doctors. It was true. And this girl looks at me and she says, and I was that baby. And she was not keeping the holiday according to Jewish law. She was like smoking cigarettes, like and not, not getting a light from a pre-existing flame or anything like that. And um, she wasn't keeping Shabbos. I don't think she kept kosher or any of that. But she was still telling me this miracle story. So in that moment, I realized she, it's impossible that she, she doesn't have an agenda. She's not trying to convince me of something for her own uh, personal reasons. She's just telling me a story. And I realized if the world that I'm in is a world where miracles actually can happen and where holiness is actually a thing and where righteous, holy individuals, tzaddikim, are, are, are a thing, I need to do some major uh, reassessing of, of my life and, and, and the, the decisions I'm, I'm making. So, so fast forward a little bit, once I started connecting to Chabad and teachings of the Chabad Rebbeim and Hasidic philosophy, that really gave me a whole new pair of glasses to to see the world through and in a positive light in a in a empowering way in a hopeful way in a kind of let's turn turn the world over sort of way let's turn turn our lives over not just over to god but like if they're not you know if they're upside down let's right side up them um and really gave me a a a, a whole new kind of energy and and motivation in life so you're what you're saying if you'll, you'll i'm going to interpret what you said and just to clarify because i didn't pick this up the last time we talked about this what you're saying is that you feel like your optimism and hope was inherent to you and along the way you lost that and the process of you encountering this young woman and then off of that encounter, giving yourself permission to pursue other spiritual teachers has led you to a path that's restored your inherent hope. 
I think that's that's fair to say. But a lot of my optimism from from my earlier years was perhaps just the naive optimism. It wasn't really based on much, just this kind of natural state of being. Later on, it, the optimism was was something I, I had to work towards and something based based on actual information and, and a belief system rather than just this gut gut feeling. Um, so it's not just tapping into an inherent hope, but tapping into an inherent hope and then allowing it to mature and evolve into something that's more substantial. Right, with with Torah and Judaism being being the framework within... That allowed you to do that. Right. And specifically for you, it was attaching yourself to Chabad and the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Yeah, and it, and it impacted the music as well that I was doing because the Rebbe was known for, for saying about people who did not grow up observant to not simply divorce themselves from their, their previous lives, but to take their talents and even their relationships from before and and kind of massage spirituality and 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 goodness and and the and and morality into it so i the music stayed with me a lot of my friendships stayed with me it just all got elevated mm. so what's a daily practice or a habit that you have could be something secret doesn't have to be secretive but something maybe even in some ways the simpler the better but what's a what's what's something that you do that you really feel contributes to your success contributes to your sense of wholeness wholesomeness success and being you know your best you it's certainly a a daily challenge even uh, from moment to moment to try to uh, realize my potential it's a forever elusive mission but a worthwhile one um the only one that matters to me um but i'd say one of the biggest tools that that has come in the form of i guess you could call it a habit or a hobby or a passion is is my music um i guess it was a perfect segue that that you know in psychological terms we talk about sublimation as being the pretty much the most ideal form of an ego defense a way that one navigates challenges and disequilibrium in life so music has been the perfect medium through which i'm able to to express and contain opposing feelings and conflict and put it on display for everyone but it's also it's very therapeutic for me um first and foremost it's it's for me and then it just so happens that i'd, I'd like to think it's been very helpful as as a resource for other people who can identify with with struggles and ups and downs of life you know uh, once spoke with Simon Jacobson doing an interview for for Rabbi Kessler who I worked with closely in the Jewish Recovery Center and you know he 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 told me a story about 
the time the time that he spoke uh, a time that he spoke with a cardiologist and the cardiologist is like rabbi you know i just want one day of peace and rabbi jacobson's like what peace you mean like like a straight line and he put his hand out like kind of drawing a straight line and the cardiologist is like whoa 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 no not like a straight line because in cardiologist's mind a straight line is a a flat line right so basically the 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 ups and downs of life are part of the deal and if someone says they only want to experience summer they're they're <laughs> they're in for a rude awakening so essentially to be able to channel the 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 tumultuous journey that we all experience into music has been invaluable to me and I hope to others. Uh, how does how does that work for you? What's your process? Are you developing a beat and then then you start writing the the poetry of it? Are you you're coming up with the poetry first? Does it start with one line or does it is there a general theme that you're trying to express? First of all, I'm glad you said that it that is poetry because that's exactly what it is. A lot of people say, "Oh, rap, rap music." The last thing they're thinking about is is poetry if they're not they're not privy to the inner workings of of hip hop and the whole the whole genre. Um, but I think there's only one song that I wrote. It's called Memories. Um, it's a very powerful song, and it's actually not hip hop at all. It's it's very much a kind of a ballad. Um, I think that's the only song that I ever wrote without writing to the music. So typically, what I'll do is I'll be working with a producer uh, who may in, in the world of hip hop, a producer is the person who makes the beat, who makes the music, um, and I'll typically listen to a, a a particular beat. I'll listen to that music and whatever it evokes inside me, I'll try to match my my poetry to it. And and is that something where you'll be in a particular space in your head and then things emerge like specific themes or is it just like intuitive? Does it just emerge out of nowhere? I think for for better or for worse, I typically have not decided, okay, this song is going to be about this. That's often the case in hip hop. Not always, but a lot of people who don't know hip hop will say, oh, that's so cool. You, you rap? What, what do you rap about? <laughs> and that's almost like, to me, that's like saying, oh, that's, that's so cool. Like you're, you're, you live life. Like what's, what's that about? Like, <laughs> uh, I don't know, standing on one foot, uh, Talk to the cardiologist and Robert Jacobson. I don't know. It's like there's there's no dominant theme, but every now and then I've come I've had a song that 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 really has an overarching theme. Usually it'll just be kind of this free association thing that that I try to tie together tie together with a a chorus, or it starts off in a certain direction and, and then I just kind of keep going with it. Um, but it's usually all over the place. So your music is kind of organically driven. Very much so. Very much so. It's not, uh, there's no, nine times out of ten with my songs, there's no no formula, no premeditated thought that goes into it. Uh, and is that what makes it 
therapeutic, you think? Yes. I think even if it had structure, if I said, you know, like for example, I did also have, I had a song that I recently released called, called Know That I Love You. That's an ode to my, to my son. And I actually wrote it just prior to his, his birth. Um, so that was still therapeutic, even though it was in the context of like a, a category, there were certain parameters, like talking about my son, talking about what I, what I hope for him, what I, what I want him to know, um, about me and my wife's, uh, you know, love for him and care for him. Um, so it could still be therapeutic, even if it's more structured, but yeah, I think the most therapeutic for me is just this kind of like. Freudian style, like free association, like just let it, let it like take the gloves off and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. What's um, if you had to pick one thing about one relationship in your life, you know, a thing that makes that relationship extra meaningful, you know, what would that relationship be? What would that thing be? And then what do you do to foster and grow that? Look, the, the, the most important relationship with a, a human being that, that I have is, is the one with my wife. Um, and that requires you know, quite a bit um, for both of us to, to put into the relationship. Um, if you ever... Someone wants to know more about that. Uh, be happy to elaborate. You know, perhaps uh, without a mic in front of me, about what what that takes, and the the beauty that can result from it. But I'd say there's a parallel to that, which is the most important relationship that I've ever had, that took a lot of work, which is the relationship that I have with God. And what's allowed that relationship to flourish and to be an oasis, even the, in the midst of some terrible storms, um, is that we never gave up on one another. I never gave up on Hashem. He never gave up on me. Even when I wasn't putting putting the work into the relationship that I needed to, to be putting forth. Um, I once went to, to Rabbi Posner in Boston and told him, like, it was probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I said, Rabbi, I'm just not feeling it. He's like, what do you mean? It's like, just it. I'm just not feeling it. Like the whole, <laughs> the whole thing. This whole Jewish, Hasidic, dedicated to to a higher spiritual existence thing. I'm just not feeling it. And he's like, "Well, are you learning at all? Like, you know, studying Hasidus or any like inspirational concepts?" My answer was no. He said, "Are you doing anything for your spirituality? Like, are you are you connecting uh, through prayer? Are you davening at all?" No, no, not really. And he looked at me with you know, people who know Rabbi Posner know know the look that I'm talking about. It's kind of um, 
soul, soul probing gaze and said, we all know what happens to even the most beautiful flower when it doesn't get water. And, you know, I mentioned, mentioned this before to different friends of mine and also to friends who grew up in the, the more religious system, if you will, observant circles. And to them, they've, they've heard that kind of message a thousand times and it, it, and it can rub a lot of them the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go learn. Go daven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You heard that a billion times from different uh, Rabbanim and Yeshiva and maybe their parents as well. But for me, it was the first time I ever heard such a concept. And uh, now I know if I'm not, like there is a direct correlation between my, the, the suffering of my disposition. Like if I start feeling more negative or more, uh, you know, disconnected and not grateful for things, like it's invariably because I am not putting in the work spiritually. So the one thing that you do that fosters the most important, this most important relationship in your life is take the steps to develop the connectedness and to honor it, feed the plant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, anyone who, who has access to this sort of stuff or would be inclined to do so, I would very much encourage you to take a look at some of the Hasidic philosophy about surrounding marriage because the the parallels between between that and just our 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 marriage to to God if you will are uncanny anyone who's married know will know like in the same way that that uh our relationship with God can wilt if we're not feeding it if we're not vigilant. watering it got to be vigilant our relationship with our spouses with our significant others is is the same you know, if we're not doing those things, we're not watering that plant. Right, right. And when I say vigilant, I realize that that has it almost seems like like a, a burden. I don't I don't mean it, God forbid, in, in that way. Um, but yeah, we've got to. You mean not take it for granted? Yeah, and 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 it shouldn't feel like a chore. I'm talking about giving in order to receive, and that's not why you're giving. But you will end up receiving if you if you give, you know, some of yourself to the cause. So you're 26, 27 years old. You're on tour with Montesio. You're doing your own concerts. I know I saw on Facebook a month ago you did a show in Orlando. I think at a Magic game. Yeah, yeah. Um, Amway Center. That must have been thrilling. You shared with me earlier that uh, that you're maintaining honors level work at a very high level social work graduate program. You're uh, teaching English at a French university. You're doing stuff. I'd imagine the concert stuff is probably the most thrilling. How do you how do you stay grounded through all that? How do you not lose like your humility? sight of yourself listen you'd be surprised walking through the halls of the hunter silverman school of social work 
in traditional Hasidic garb can be quite thrilling. Um, <laughs> however, that being said, yeah, performing in front of a, a bunch of excited fans certainly in many respects takes the cake. But um, humility is also one of these things that's ever elusive. Staying grounded is very challenging. Um, but all, all of these things are connected that, that we're, we're talking about. And one of the major tools that I've used is um, not being afraid to pick up the phone and call people who I'm very close with, who know me very well. I know them well. They have my best interest in mind. They know my most intimate thoughts and strengths and challenges. Um, and to, to reach out to them in, in times of need or even not in times of need um, is extremely grounding. And quite often they know better about, you know, than I do about, I like to keep people around me like that. Um, of course, there's the idea of also, uh, you know, helping others or if someone, if someone asks you for advice, of course, that's, that's also a very powerful, uh, interaction. Um, but these kind of, uh, social synapses, if you will, between me and the people I love most and who, 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 who love me dearly, um, are, are the, the, both the gravity in my life and in my world and that which uplifts me. And I'm in trouble if I'm, if I'm isolating, if I'm not reaching out to the people who are going to, uh, you know, remind me of what I need to be focused on and point out to me distorted ways of thinking or perceiving certain events or behaviors either myself or in others, like if, I'm, if I'm not reaching out to these people, I'm, I'm in trouble. They're kind of like my... my Your anchor. Yeah, my compass, my, my GPS. And I guess going back to the last question, that means watering those relationships so that they, they flower, so you have them there when you need them. Yeah, yeah. And um, look, the reality is that with all that being said, People can potentially, and some people invariably will fall short or will 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 let us down. Um, so the probably the most important uh, source of of direction, motivation, and and uh, humility, or at least a path towards humility, is in the spiritual teachings that I hold near and dear, particularly in particular uh, Hasidic Chabad, um, Hasidic philosophy within the Chabad Lubavitch movement, uh, dynasty. But um, so so if if a person lets me down, that's not that's not the end of the line, fortunately. Um, they're books that don't lie. They don't deviate from the, the message, you know, in the, in the world of recovery, you know, there's a, a phrase uh, that principles are 
to be taken more seriously, so to speak, than than personalities. You know, don't get don't get caught up in the the fallibility of 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 humankind. Um, it's not to say people aren't extremely vital to one's journey. They are, but uh, Hasidus doesn't lie. The eternity of the idea, the principle. Yeah, yeah. So what do you do on the opposite end? What do you do when you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, when you encounter sadness, burnout? How do you recharge? Well, probably the... the I guess there, there are a few options, fortunately. Um, one of the... I, I guess this also goes back to what one of my favorite places might be, but the, the Ohel, the, the, where the Lubavitcher Rebbe is buried in Queens, um, is a place where I recharge. If you said that to, to someone who's not familiar with such a concept, you say, what are you, what are you talking about? You go, you go to a place where, where people are buried to to feel more in touch with with your life and to gain uh, I don't know to do a an a self like assessment and 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 so to recharge your battery like that seems bizarre and that's because it is bizarre but you know to all the philosophers out there what what's normal um the oho is a place where time ceases to exist, where I feel exposed and vulnerable, the most vulnerable in front of God. And I'm able to take a, an honest evaluation of, of my behavior, my aspirations, where I'm falling short, what I need to work on, and and uh but it's not done in this in this overly harsh on self sort of way it's it's really in the in the context of of a certain spiritual optimism and and hope for the future that's probably one of the one of the more intense solemn places where i recharge recharge um but also at a at a hasidic fabringen a gathering where people you know, get together and and the like the mutually shared goal of of spreading inspiration and singing and sharing insights with with one another if 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 it's a good for bringing which I'm sad to say isn't always redundant um but if it's good it can be quite the the boost and uh, the key is taking that inspiration and challenging it, uh, ch channeling it, uh, which can be challenging, uh, into action. Um, you know, I once said to this guy, who was like, man, you and a couple of these other guys come around, I feel so inspired. And I was like, hey, man, screw, screw inspiration. Like, I'm not, not such a fan. And I meant that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but basically what I mean is we can't rely on inspiration. 
because it, it, it can be like a, like a firework, just this burst of energy and then it's gone. So the real question is, how do we inspire ourselves to the point of action? And then even when we're not feeling inspired, how do we still remember to, to act the way we feel is most appropriate in the way that's, you know, they say like, how do you build self-esteem by, by doing esteemable acts? So how do we remember that and keep that at the forefront even when we're not feeling the inspiration? That's the million dollar question. Hmm. What about like in your, in your musical pursuits, like, I don't know how it works out, like in a hip hop genre where the process is, I guess, organic. Do you, do you ever come to a place where you're just shut off where you can't, you know, it's not flowing? That's impossible. I am a never ending well of, <laughs> of artistic insight and inspiration. Um, no, for sure. There, there are times where I'm just not, just not in the, in the right headspace and in, in the zone. Um, is that hard? It's hard, but, but in that, in that event, um, you know, I know it's much so interesting. The lack of inspiration is, can be just as temporary as the inspiration. Um, so knowing that that this too, this too shall pass, um, is an important notion to keep, keep in mind. Um, so like motivation, inspiration, willingness is a fleeting thing as much as it can be gone. It can also come back. Yeah. And there's the, I think it's important to note that there's this pretty powerful Jewish concept that, that action will lead to a, a, a deeper understanding and appreciation of things, um, which is very counterintuitive. You would think that, you know, no, man, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna invest myself into something that I, I, don't, I don't understand for the life of me. But there's a concept of nasev anishma that that you you start to put one foot in front of the other, and then you'll see the benefit of walking, or you start, you know, you you help somebody out, and then you 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 realize, wow, the, you know that. That made the world a better place. I feel better. They feel better. We all feel better. Um, same goes for for doing spiritual things, doing doing mitzvahs, learning Torah. I always forget. I always forget how much I enjoy studying Hasidic philosophy because that's that's pretty much my my go to. Um, if I'm going to delve into a book, that you know, give a moment. That's my, that's my preference. I don't mean to reinforce any stereotypes about Lubavitcher's uh, favoring Hasidic philosophy over all other uh, spiritual texts, but um, I forget. I forget how much I like it. And then, uh, you know, 30 seconds into it, I'm like, oh, man, I forgot, forgot how good this feels. forgot how illuminating, illuminating of an experience this is. So, so basically what I'm saying is even with the music, sometimes I've just pushed, pushed through, meaning a couple for a few minutes, a half hour, an hour, I'm just not feeling it and keep, keep pushing. 
and eventually I, I get to a, a place of motivation and inspiration uh, just from trying. Mm. So it's not always about shying away and coming back later. It's sometimes it's about pushing through. It's always about pushing through. It's always about more, more, more. It's never, never enough what we're doing, which is a very tricky concept because you can that can lead to one being overly harsh on on oneself. But it's a like a lot of things in life. It's a it's a delicate juggling act. But with the right people in my life and the right the right bits and pieces of information that I've that I've been fortunate enough to to be exposed to over the years, I I'm not too I, I'm not too harf, harsh on myself. Meaning know? it's like no retreat. Always in advance. Always in advance. It's a, it's that's funny. It reminds me. It takes me back to something you said earlier about the people that you were attracted to in your childhood. That you, you know, their passion. You know, like their the vigorousness that you were attracted to that seems to play itself out. Like you're not going, you're not backing down. That's a very powerful connection. And I, I don't know if you're going to bill me for this session. Afterwards, <laughs> but, uh, I never saw that. I never saw that connection before. Um, I knew that I gravitated towards strong personalities and convictions, so to speak, but I never really realized how many tools some of these, uh, troublemakers gave me to just not give up and to, to you know, take a certain stubborn approach to life. And, and, and in this context that we're talking about, what it evolved to is a very holy version of stubbornness, stiff-neckedness, if you will. Holy stubbornness. All right, Nelson, that was amazing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's great to have you. My pleasure. Love you guys. It was an honor. All right, all the best. Thanks for listening. Love you. Up's the hardest thing never ever do. Everybody seems to know that I once was upside down. Now I'm right side up for you now. Every day's a gift, and I know it's true. I finally grew up, and that's how I thank God for you. Thanks for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of the Living Room, which is a division of Our Place, New York and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family in memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky and produced by Chaim Kohn, with editing by Eitan Kornblum and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback and questions. So please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages.